Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca. Hey everyone, this is Courtney, and I'm so happy you're joining us for another episode of In Doubt. If you're new to the program, our hope is to reach all ages, but specifically young adults with biblical content that helps you through your day-to-day. Right now, things sound a little different as we're respecting the prescribed physical distancing. So all of our conversations are recorded remotely with our guests and hosts at home. In saying that, we want to continually provide you with relevant and engaging conversations. On today's episode, we're doing just that with our guest this week, James Ellis III, and he has a story to tell. James is the university chaplain at Trinity Western University, and I won't give away too much, but you'll hear him tell his testimony that involves racial conflict and violence, but also how he came to know and love Jesus Christ. His story is something that I hope you find encouraging and helpful in your daily walk with God. So here's the conversation with Daniel and James Ellis III. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Daniel Markin, and today I'm joined by James Ellis III. How you doing, James? I'm doing well, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being a part of our discussion today. And uh, as we begin, before we begin, uh, would you just tell our listeners who you are and where you came from and everything that we need to know about you as a person, as James Ellis III? No, no problem. I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Um, let's see. I am the university chaplain and director of student ministries at Trinity Western University here in Langley, BC. I just began uh, this past fall, September 16th, so still relatively new and trying to learn the ropes about life here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as I guess just maybe my general background, uh, I was born in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, my father was in the United States Air Force. I'm a U.S. citizen. We left there when I was four years old and then moved to Maryland. So just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, the nation's capital there in the U.S. I was raised on a military installation. And so my whole life kind of as a kid growing up was, you know, around the military, living on base uh, as it was. Uh, Long story, but I eventually went to the University of Maryland and that's where I went to undergrad and got involved in ministry just really because uh, I felt like Jesus called me to it. I did not choose it. Uh, on my own. I did not do a little, you know, sort of roundabout uh, pick a card. Uh, I was a website designer for a number of years, worked at the Washington Post, uh, National Public Radio, and lastly, USA Today, and just was behind the scenes doing my little website editing job and eventually felt like God was calling me into ministry. And so I said, okay, Lord, well, we're about to do this. And and it's been an interesting journey. What was the kind of defining moment that really launched you into saying, yeah, I'm doing ministry. Because I think every, you know, there's definitely a a trail leading up to it, but was there a day where you're like, well, here we go? I I mean, I guess I would say if I uh, would start back a little bit, you know, you can't do ministry if you're not uh, in Christ. And uh, I came to Christ when I was 20 years old. So uh, I had never been to church at all, ever before in my life. Uh, My parents, even today, I'm 40 years old, and my parents are not believers. They do not go to anybody's church I've never seen them pray, read a Bible, anything like that. That's just not, not who they are. Um, and so that's how I was raised. But in college, I had some friends that kept bugging me about 
you know, you should go to church, you should check out Jesus. And really, even though they were living very, I guess I would say, double-minded or hypocritical lives there in the co-ed, uh, very secular, uh, free living dorm that I, that I lived in, um, I, I said, hey, I'll, I'll go to church with you guys, but really and honestly and truly, just so you will get off my back and stop talking to me about Jesus uh, at two o'clock in the morning as we're staying up and not studying as we probably should have been. And it just happened that that one Sunday morning that I went to Maple Springs Baptist Church in Capitol Heights, Maryland, I heard the gospel preached. I was able to sing these songs that I had really no idea what they were saying, but, but I was convicted that Jesus was real and, and that he died for, I mean, as much as he died for the world, and that's awesome, uh, I was convicted that he died for me, like James Elsa III. And, and I said, oh, I need Jesus, y'all. I need Jesus, like, right now. And so gave my life to Christ. Uh, so that was 20. And then uh, eventually when I graduated, I, again, I, as I mentioned, I had this career in website development. After that, I became a pre-kindergarten teacher. Uh, I love little kids. Uh, they are, are really nice and cool to work with, but they also have a lot of germs. Uh, I could tell you more about that. And as it was, eventually, uh, when I was teaching pre-kindergarten, I, I really was asking God, which I should have done long before, but I'm 20, 23, 24, and finally started asking God, you know, what do you want me to do with this, this borrowed life, this ransom life that, that I've been bought with at a, at a price? Uh, what do you, there's got to be something that you have in mind that like you want me to do, not my neighbor, not my friend, but, but me with, with this life. And, you know, I didn't hear Charlton Heston uh, sort of speak with this big, you know, bass of a voice into my, my, you know, consciousness or anything. I didn't hear God speak audibly, but um, just in the, in the deepest reservoirs of my heart, I felt God kept responding with uh, ministry as, as the answer to my question. And it would, it would start to be confirmed by just seemingly random uh, encounters that I would have with uh, some of the teachers I was working with, other people that would just, you know, say, Mr. Ellis, you're, you're really great with these kids. I was working at a Christian school doing pre-K and, and they would say, you're really good with your students. I see how you kind of like are, you're a shepherd to them, you know, and I see how you, you line them up in the hallway and I see how you lovingly sort of break up their little fights that they have. And, you know, I see how you, you know, just really care about them. Have you ever thought about being a pastor? And that just kind of happened over and over again, even though no one was privy to these sort of private conversations that I would have, was having with God. And so, yeah, I accepted that, hey, all right, I think this is what you're calling me to, God, and eventually started seminary and, and uh, went on from there. Wow. And uh, where did you go to seminary? So I went to George Truett Theological Seminary, which is at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Uh, if anybody is familiar with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines and all their HGTV stuff, um, that's where Waco, Texas is. I did one degree there, a master's in theological studies. But then I also did uh, another master's at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. I did a, a one-year post-master's research degree called a Master of Sacred Theology. And for that year that I was there, I was able to really focus on uh, pastoral care and homiletics, which are uh, two topics that I'm really interested in. And I'm currently in a Doctor of Ministry program at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan. Oh, wow. So let me ask you this then. You, you alluded to your parents you know, never been to church, never want to, were they hostile? Uh, like, would you consider them hostile to Christianity or are they just kind of, you know, Hey, you do you, we're going to, we don't really care. We don't really believe. How would you describe them? And then how would you describe, you know, were they supportive when you said, Hey, I want to be, you know, I want to get into Christian ministry. Would you tell us about that? Cause it occurs to me that we probably have lots of listeners who 
again, grow up in non-Christian families and get saved. And uh, their families, you know, you want your parents to come to faith, but uh, that's got to be difficult. Would you be able to share about that? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I, I would say, I mean, my parents do not seem now, nor did they necessarily seem when I was growing up, um, hostile to, to Christianity. I mean, they didn't seem like they, you know, were, were anti faith necessarily we, we didn't practice another religion or anything like that it's not like we were muslim we weren't you know baha'i or going to you know any any other kind of you know buddhist temples or anything like that we just we didn't do anything or believe anything so, so to speak um no no ritual so so no easter no christmas no mother's day somebody's dragging you to church i didn't have any of that growing up um and and so yeah i think you know for me when i came to faith uh, to be honest, my, my parents kind of wigged out. My mom is, you know, just as many moms are, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but, you know, really like emotional. And I remember when I came home, you know, again, 20 years old, I was a junior and my third year at the university of Maryland, um, I played football, American football, my first couple of years. And then by then wasn't playing anymore. And I came home during like a break and, and told my mom, like, uh, like I, I just gave my life to Christ, you know? <laughs> and, and my mom like busts out into tears and she's like crying and like, you know, like I, I think in her mind, just probably because of experiences she had with, I think, Christianity growing up, um, I think she felt like, oh, now he's going to be like, he's, he's going joining a cult or, you know, he's, his whole life is going to be talking to me about scripture every day and, and kind of being one of those, you know, kinds, kinds of Christians, so to speak. So, so yeah, I mean, growing up, my parents, and even as I came to faith, I mean, they, they kind of winked out, but didn't seem hostile to faith. Uh, I will say, though, as far as my call into ministry, you know, my parents eventually calmed down with the whole become the faith thing. And I mean, we, we definitely had some differences and just some tension for a number of years. And so I think they, they really, you know, kind of resolved themselves to the fact that, you know, he is his own person. He's his own man. These are decisions that he has made. And either we're going to get on the train and, and just really support him to the extent that we can, or we're just going to continue to have this very distant relationship. And so today, 2020, uh, as, as unbelieving and sort of unchurched, if you will, as my parents are, uh, my parents are some of my biggest supporters. You know, they're very encouraging, again, to the extent that they can be. And, you know, even to the extent that my parents, I mean, they'll, uh, you know, there's times they have said, you know, hey, you have this new move that's coming up, you know, moving from maybe West Virginia to D.C. or from D.C. to Michigan or from Michigan to, to British Columbia. But, you know, if the Lord is calling you, then you got to go. And so, you know, it's just those kinds of things from people who are, are disconnected from the church in all the ways you could think of, you know, that's special. Mm -hmm. James, let me ask you about this, because when we were talking a little bit before the show, you had mentioned that uh, you had experienced violence in your life in the past, that, that you've known people who have experienced violence. Would you be able to share uh, with our audience a little bit about that? Happy to. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these things that... Um, like, I wish I had a different story to share. Um, I, I wish that it wasn't a part of my journey, but it is. And so as, as devastating as it has been, it's, it's also, um, I guess you could say, a privilege to be able to share uh, this kind of story um, as often as I do. I mean, I get to talk to students and, and other folks um, rather often um, to kind of keep uh, my friend's legacy uh, uh, alive. So um, my best friend in the world, uh, I was 13 years old. Um, again, as I mentioned before, I went to um, all black schools um, until I, I kind of went to got into my high school years. And even though I lived on 
Andrews Air Force Base, you know, which is this huge military installation where, you know, Air Force One, the president's plane is kept um, and there's all this security and, and whatnot and, and a large degree of diversity on the, the military base because you have different families, different branches of the you know, armed forces and people from all parts of the world that live there. Um, I, I was bused uh, about 45 minutes away to a place called Capitol Heights, Maryland. And so in that setting, at that school, it was right on the border of one of the worst parts of Washington, D.C. in terms of you know, homicides and things like that. This was the height of the 1980s crack epidemic uh, in the D.C. area. Um, so in my, my playground there in Capitol Heights in elementary school, we, we would have crack vials uh, on the playground. You know, there were, there were fights all the time uh, in the community and in school. It just was, was one of those kinds of places. Um, and so, so that's kind of, I just lived in these two, two separate worlds. You know, one world on base with my parents, security, all these different kinds of things, uh, diversity, and then going to school every day. Uh, in, a, in a totally different world. Um, but I, I found my best friend, um, his name was An Joseph Antonio Ford. And he had been my best friend from like our kindergarten years all the way up through sort of as we entered middle school. Um, but when I turned 13, my parents moved us uh, to the, the suburbs, as I mentioned. And so I switched schools and, uh, you know, was about to go to this different middle school on my way to high school. And um, I, I got a, a one Sunday morning, my mother came downstairs in our new house that we had just been in for probably a month or so. And she had the Metro section of the Washington post. And, uh, on the Metro section was this, this like leading article, this, this, you know, big, big blow up. And it had, um, a school photo of, of a young person and it was Joseph's uh, school photo. And the, the headline said something like, you know, 13 year old straight A student, uh, caught in a crossfire, you know, shot and killed in, in Maryland. And so, uh, yeah, Joseph was uh, the only Christian that I knew, you know, all of those years of my life. Um, he, he was uh, a junior deacon at his church. Um, he played the drums. Uh, he was involved in all kinds of different youth things at his church. And so one evening, a uh, straight A student, again, never, never was in trouble. He was um, on his way home from church with his uh, brothers and his mother. They were in their car and uh, they were driving down this, this avenue. And there were two guys on opposite sides of the street that started shooting at each other over some drug deal that one person thought the other one ripped him off or something like that. So they're on opposite sides of the street. They start shooting at each other. And the car that Joseph was in with his, his mother and brothers uh, is just going, it just happens to get hit with a hail of bullets as they pass through the, the street. And uh, fortunately, no, no one else was, was hit. Uh, the car was riddled with bullets, but Joseph was, was struck once uh, behind his ear and he died instantly. And so that was just a, you know, a huge moment in my life. Um, I had never really dealt with death um, up to that point. I would deal with it a couple times uh, more uh, with some other friends that were shot and killed later on. But, but that was the first time. And again, not coming from a Christian household, you know, it's, I mean, people can give you sort of these, these general platitudes and, and sayings, but you know, my parents didn't really know how to navigate that well. Um, and so it just was difficult, you know, to lose someone who, again, he was the only Christian that I knew up to that point. I mean, he was always talking about Jesus. Uh, he was a straight A student, super smart, um, you know, just never got in trouble. And uh, it was just hard to, to lose someone. So uh, I guess I would say in some maybe recovery circles um, in, in churches and, and also not in churches, they'll, they'll say that um, hardship is the pathway to peace. Right. And um 
you know, I think I think you see that in scripture too. I mean, you look at the, the book of Job, uh, you look at even Christ's story, you know, he he paid an ultimate price and sacrificed himself that, that we wouldn't have to, you know, experience the same. And so I think um, as much as tough times and unpredictable calamities and, you know, all these kinds of things happen in our lives, you know, personally, not not on a global scale, but, you know, these, these things happen in our lives. Tomorrow is not promised for any of us. It's really difficult, but um, I think the, the best thing we can do is sort of not run away from those experiences, um, to be in community with people. And I wasn't a Christian at the time, but, you know, all these years later, um, once I did come to, to faith in Christ, I now, again, have this, this privileged opportunity to kind of share uh, Joseph's story and, you know, all that he's meant to me, even all these years later with, you know, whoever's willing to listen. So it's a it's a tough you know story, but um, I'm grateful that, you know, God's allowed me to, to be able to continue to share it. Yeah. Well, and it's clearly had an impact on you. And who knows how many people that has all also impacted Right, that's the thing. You would never know until on on this side of heaven. When you get to heaven, um, you know there's going to be so many people who have been impacted by his story. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I uh, I did my degree in the United States as well, and one of the things that was very new to me, and I think would be helpful for some of our listeners, was I came in as a Canadian into a context that was very. There's a large focus on issues of social justice, and that's kind of the way I want to take this episode is talk talk to you about what it means to be a Christian in social justice. In Chicago, the, the area of uh, contention often uh, in most issues was that of race relations, and uh, you are an African-American male, and I would love to hear about... Uh, you know, your life growing up, what that was like, and how the gospel transforms, you know, relations, race relations like this. Because in Canada, this, we don't really, we, I think we look down at the United States and we see some of the, the racial tensions going on, but we don't really have much to compare it to here. And so I would love to, if you could share for our listeners, what were some of the tensions there and, and what were some of the difficulties and things you experienced? Yeah, I mean... Definitely, you know, as a person of color, more specifically as an African-American, given the, the history and, and even current realities of uh, how America came into existence um, as a nation and all of the racial disparities and exploitation that, you know, all of us should know by now um, that went into that and continue to be permeated through uh, a system that, that is, uh, you know, unjust and that, um, that is unfair. Um, you know, life is, is, is different, you know, as someone who you know, I'm, I'm African-American, so I, I stick out in, in most all contexts that, that I am and that I'm in. And and so I, I guess I would say two things. I mean, on the one hand, uh, I think, you know, my journey has been one um, of of difference. Uh, you know, I was raised in, by African-American parents, uh, but but there's still so many different layers to my story. So, for example, my 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 uh, paternal grandparents so my, my dad's mother and father. Are, are both from the South, like not just minimally South of the Mason-Dixon line, like which is where Maryland would start, but the South, like the deep South, like Florida and uh, Alabama, uh, Georgia. And um, right. they eventually moved from the South uh, to New York. And, and that's kind of where they, they met and fell in love. My grandparents, I'm thinking of. Um, my maternal grandparents, my grandfather is from Texas and my grandmother is from, uh, from Maine. And uh, anybody who knows anything about New England, but 
you know, maybe in particular uh, Maine and New Hampshire, uh, Kittery, Maine and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, there are not a lot of black folks up there at all. Um, there's a lot of really good seafood. Um, it, they, they kill it with lobster and flounder and, and shrimp and, and all that. It's, I highly recommend it. But uh, while there's diversity in the, the crustacean life, you know, in the, in the seafood that's offered, there's not a lot of diversity um, in terms of the, the people. Um, I was saying all that just to say that my grandmother on my mom's side is French Canadian. So if you see all of my relatives on my mom's side, uh, you would not at first glance think that they were African-American. At the very least, you might say that they're like a darker Italian uh, individual. You know, their hair is really curly. Um, they might have like a like a nice, nice semi tan, so to speak. But they are not my shade of African-American. And so, you know, as a kid growing up in the Washington, D.C., kind of Maryland area, uh, you know, Prince George's County, which is a county in, in Maryland that um, has one of the largest, highest incidence of economic prosperity among black folks is one of the, the richest black counties in, in the entire country. Um, so to experience that where sort of black pride is celebrated and you see people look like you all the time. Uh, I went to school with all black students, uh, but then you go, you know, just up north and you're in a totally different land. Um, but then I've also had experiences, you know, I went to school with all black kids for most of my life uh, until high school when my parents wanted to move us uh, to the suburbs so they could buy their own house and not be in base housing anymore. And so we moved to Charles County, which is just south of Prince George's County where I was raised. And so I went from being in all black schools to like one of a few in this new you know, high school that had just been built. And so, you know, my, my football coach that I love to death, Don Zaccarelli, um, he, he was a white guy and I had most of my football coaches were assistant coaches were white guys. Most of the team was like, you know, mostly white guys. And so it was just, it was just different. And so I say all that to say, as an African-American, you're constantly navigating difference and being a minority all the time. You don't get a day off. Uh, there's no vacations from being African-American uh, in a society that has the, the structures that America does. Um, and I think that's just the particular journey. Um, you have to have some grit and some perseverance and ultimately uh, is best represented in African-Americans. I would say, um, you know, we've gotten this far by faith, not that all African-Americans are Christians by any means, but um, many of us are. And, and the ways in which we have navigated oppression and and uh, dejection over the years has been through faith in, in Christ. Um, I, if I were to switch gears, you know, you asked about sort of social justice and, and sort of maybe how that looks. Yeah, I mean, part of my lament um, and critique of the church in America, and, and I'm sure some of it would, would translate well here to Canada, is that um, it's really easy for us to have, you know, a, a theology that says we should go and do, you know, that we should um, feed those that are hungry. We should clothe those who are naked. Um, we should visit those who are in prison. Um, it's cool to say that in some esoteric, uh, detached, you know, abstract way, uh, which the Bible would attest to that those, these are good things that we should do. Um, what I find, though, is that uh, in practice, in reality, in lifestyle, um, particularly for, for Christians that, that are Caucasian because of the power structure, um, we rarely do that. And so um, again, the Bible calls that sort of like being double-minded or being a hypocrite. Um, I think scripture uh, contends for this best when it says that faith without works is dead. You know, good good works are things that we all should do. We all should be displaying fruits of the Spirit um, in our lives, how we work, um, the ways in which we care for those, especially those that are, um, you know, sort of um, uh, exploited or that are isolated and, and, and systematically not set up for, for success. Um, our eye and our heart 
should 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 hurt um, in a, a particular direction to try to want to do our part um, for people. But to your point, we also should have um, a really good sound soteriology or doctrine of salvation, so to speak, as to how we understand uh, you know the, the interplay of faith and works. One of the things I had experienced when I did my degree in Chicago and part of the, you know, the discussion of social justice and, and fighting for the oppressed, fighting for the poor was my experience was churches that tend to do that tend to really be weak on their theology, meaning that they, they, there's biblical doctrines that have been held throughout history that, you know, that's, that is orthodoxy would be the word to describe that. This is what the church has believed for, for generations and and hundreds of, hundreds of years, thousands of years, right? This is what the church believes. They, what I noticed was churches that they would be more liberal tended to be way more in involved in social justice efforts. And then the other side of it, one thing I noticed is that you have a lot of maybe very conservative churches, very, you know, doctrine and, and the Bible, and, and they will almost be rigid in the sense that they'll say, well, that social justice is for, you know, the, the left. And I'm, I'm painting them as two extremes. But what I mean to say is, how do we find that happy medium where we actually do our faith with works and, and love the poor and, and and the oppressed and those who are in systems of oppression, and also hold to orthodoxy, hold to the scriptures as as we are called to do both? How how, how do you think we go about doing this? Yeah, yeah, no, I got you. I think you know part of my encouragement is just that um, we all have to earn the right to be heard, and so. Um, you know, people who are unwilling um, or feel like they are above uh, being engaged in people's lives as equals, um, as human beings created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, um, who are going to build relationships with people across the aisles of difference. Um, people who feel like they're above that, um, you know, I don't, I don't see that in Scripture. You know, um, and so that's part of part of what concerns me sometimes about Christianity. No matter where you find it, particularly in the West, we have to humble ourselves enough to be able to. Uh, go out and do God's bidding. You know, God, uh, you know, is, is considered in certain circles. Uh, now that the C.S. C.S. Lewis has came up came up with this, but that the hound of heaven. You know, it's God's desire that that no one uh, would experience damnation. That everybody would come to Christ Jesus. Um, you know, that that everyone would would come to the saving uh, faith. And and in order for that to happen, uh, we have to go out and meet people. You have to have relationships. You have to have cultural intelligence. You have to have you know social and emotional depth uh, to where you can talk about more than just you know, the book of Romans, where you can talk about more than just, you know, the latest Christianity Today article, but you can have, uh, you know, collegiate, you know, just conversations with people about, you know, various things and, and sort of, again, earn the right to be heard. I think that's, that's super important. Um, I think also, you know, in terms of sort of bridging this gap between, you know, faith and works, uh, if you will, um, social justice and having a, a sound theology, I would say that if you read the Bible as it's intended and in its entire scope, the, the Bible, um, you find social justice in the Bible. I, I guess I would say for me, it's not social justice so much as it is uh, a holiness ethic. You know, um, it's not it's not going out and saving these poor folks and feeding these poor folks. Um, that that just comes with a certain air of privilege and entitlement that I think we all of us, I don't, regardless of what color you come from, uh, I've met black folks who are real sadity and feel like, you know, I've got my good government job, I, I got mine, you need to go get yours uh, type of mentality, um, and that's not healthy either. So, so I don't care what your 
racial background is or socioeconomic stance, all of us can have this air of entitlement and privilege uh, that's not necessarily earned. It's just there because of you know our parents or because of these systems that are set up. And so I think we all have to humble ourselves, you know, sit down, sometimes be quiet and, and do the, the work behind the scenes to earn the right to be in people's lives. And then from there, we're able to, you know, through relationships, share the gospel, um, you know, meet people um, at their need to the best that we can. And ultimately, I would say, I think we, we need to really relearn, if you will, um, how to trust the Holy Spirit. I, uh, I get really tired of, at least in America, again, I'm new to Canada, but in America, we will program people to death. I mean, it's like everything has a program. You got the youth ministry program, you got the outreach program, you got a program about a program. We, we have programs to try to help you how to design programs, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just kind of crazy. And, and again, I'm not knocking planning and prudence and information sharing and all that kind of stuff. I think those things are vital, but I think We've, we've tended to make them into an idol where if you can just come up, if you can just craft the, the right type of program, then somehow the Holy Spirit will bless it and they'll take off and, and do all these wonderful things. Um, whereas I think more than anything, we need to trust the Holy Spirit, uh, be in tune, walk in step with the Holy Spirit, uh, recognize the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person. Uh, he has a personality. He's a third part of the Trinity. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, being able to trust the Holy Spirit for, to, to teach us that which we do not know and to do that which we are incapable of doing on our own uh, is is key. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think you're onto something with nowadays with programs and, and we're going to tailor this ministry to this. We often can take a very individual look at faith and saying that we got to get people in these programs so that they can get saved. And, and we're just trying to do it, you know, take these steps. And then eventually you're in the kingdom, right? As you know, to, to stereotype it. But I think we are missing an element of that, which is the, the call to community that Christ has. And, and that's, that's a, a beautiful thing that we are invited into. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me say this. I, I think that, um, you know, in some of these conversations uh, about privilege, uh, about, you know, social justice, um, you know, sometimes, and this, this may not be what some of the listeners are taking away, but, but I'll just say it. Um, I think sometimes uh, there can be like sort of these, this conversation about whiteness and, and there can be a conversation about um, sort of minorities or, you know, people of color and, and, and these very stratified or, or very different unique experiences that people have. Um, and I, and I guess for me, um, you know, I, I, again, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the, the first and the last. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, he is the, the cornerstone. He's the, the rock upon which I stand and can do anything uh, in life. Um, but but God did not create me uh, sort of apart from my skin color, <laughs> you know? And I, and I think sometimes, uh, particularly in white evangelical circles, uh, there, there's kind of this push toward, hey, let's let's not really talk about, uh, you know, all this, this 400 years of oppression. Let's Let's not really talk about how you know, at least in America, there's a system that's set up that gives you privilege as a white individual that, that doesn't give me privilege as a black person. And I have to work very differently than, than you do, even though, you know, you're working hard and I'm not saying you're not, but, but there, there are just differences set up um, that, that I, one person starts out at a deficit and another person by no work of their own, by no, like no inherent other greater value of their own uh, starts out um, at an advantage. And, and that's what, how you describe, sorry, and that's just to clarify, that's how you describe privilege. They, they've started at a privileged position? Sure, 
Sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, it's just important for, for, for me to say that, uh, yeah, I, I think I don't want white evangelicals to feel bad that they are white and evangelical. Like, praise the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. No more than if someone is Indian and they're evangelical or, you know, they're a believer in Christ. That's that's awesome. Uh, the, the, the point is, for me, uh, oftentimes in, in circles of white evangelicalism, whether I'm sure in Canada or the U.S., whiteness is you know whiteness is the, the 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 view by which it's the default and so you know how i see life how i see theology how i see evangelism how i see fill in the blank is is privileged it's 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 like that's the standard by which everything else is just you know an addendum like we'll put a little asterisk oh you know the african-american theology we'll put that as an asterisk um you know latina you know theology or, or uh you know whatever we'll put that as a little asterisk and uh, all that to say in the body of christ you know, we're uh, supposed to be uh, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. And and so there is no hierarchy in, in those kinds of ethnic, uh, you know, racialized ways, which which we're all very accustomed to. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to be privileged uh, as, as an African-American. Like, I don't want to be a, anybody's token. Um, but I also uh, don't want, you know, my, my white brothers and sisters to feel like, you know, somehow their skin color is, is a curse. No, it's it just because of the way things are set up. You, you enter life at a privilege and, and I enter life at a, at a, a disadvantage. Um, but in Christ, we can all be reconciled because there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And if we're willing to do the work, and I think that's what sometimes we don't realize, it's work. Like racial reconciliation and all these kinds of issues of social justice and all this other death, it's, it's, it doesn't like happen overnight. You can't just read John Perkins, you know, literature, um, CCDA, he's done a lot of stuff in, in the States. You can't just read you know, about these certain kinds of things. And then you get some revelation. It's like, oh, I've, I've addressed that. I'm good. I'm good on racial issues. No, that's not how it works. It's a lot of work to, to be in community with people around difference and to, to say things that offend and then realize, man, I didn't mean it that way, but I, I need to think about this more. And then, you know, being in relationships with people. And so I think we as a church, uh, no matter where we find ourselves, it gets, again, especially in the West, we need to do a better job of um, having thick skin to, to engage in conversation and relationship with people um, that don't look like us, that don't vote like us, that don't you know necessarily have the same racialized experiences that we might have. James, this has been a, a great discussion. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of In Doubt. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. I don't know about you, but hearing James' story and the different things he's lived through and persevered through is really inspiring. So I just wanted to say thank you to James for taking the time to be with us and share his story. On next week's episode, James is joining us once again, and we'll be discussing the realities of life amidst the isolation of COVID-19 and how we can all respond appropriately. And I hope that you can join us then too. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 